We'll come to the time in our service now. We'll look at a passage from the Bible. We're going to talk about what it means, why this matters, and what we should do about it. So, we're continuing in this series through Ecclesiastes. So, if you would turn there, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. If you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 473. If you're looking in your own Bible, if you hit Psalms right in the middle, keep going right, you'll hit Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. When you found that, would you stand together with me? I'd love to read this passage for us. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. <clears throat> Solomon says this, There is a time for everything, and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Do you hear that, Baptists? A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet so that they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live. And this is his application from last Sunday that we talked about. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever, that nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does this so that men will revere him. Whatever is has already been. What will be has been before and God will call the past to account. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's spirit to bless this time in his word. Living God, we come to you now on asking and inviting your spirit to once again be present with us. To take these words written in the Bible, to take these words that I have written about them and just anoint them with your spirit, to, to use them in powerful ways that you've already planned to use them. God, I'm trusting that all the preparation that happened this week was all just in accordance with what you wanted to do this morning, that you will speak to each of our individual hearts in exactly the way that they need to be spoken to. You tell us in your word that when you send out this word, it doesn't return to you void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. All children, except one, grow up. These are the famous opening lines of Sir James Barry's classic play-turned-children's novel, Peter Pan. If you know that story, it centers around the tale of this lost child who is rescued by a fairy and brought to Neverland. And there he spends his days with his other lost boys, 
uh, playing, uh, having adventures, and daily trying to elude the grasp of Captain J.S. Hook. It's easy to miss, but I think a really strong theme running throughout the entire story of Peter Pan is an exploration of the way we relate to time, especially our desire to have control over it. If you just think about the story and all its elements, for instance, if you think about Neverland, if you know these stories, isn't Neverland a place where we can escape time, where the effects of time are suspended? If you think about uh, Peter and his other lost boys, uh, their constant fear of being captured by Captain Hook and his pirates, isn't that also a metaphor about our childhood fear of time's pursuit that steals our youthful energy and our childhood innocence and turns us into boring grown-ups? Or isn't the slow, relentless, ticking pursuit of Captain Hook by that crocodile who swallowed his clock as well as his hand and would very much like to finish the job. Isn't that also a metaphor of our grown-up fear of time's relentless pursuit that every day threatens everything from our calendar to our lives? No, I think for all of its childhood appear, Barry's tale is undoubtedly an allegory about one of the more challenging realities that all of us face as finite human beings living out our days under the sun. Namely, our relationship to time and our complete inability to control it. We may know that time and tide wait for no man, but maybe we just think, oh, it doesn't apply to me. We are continuing this series through the book of Ecclesiastes called The Chasing After the Winds. If you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Solomon's testing of his thesis that he began the whole book with, namely, that everything... Everything you see around you, that you look at, you see, feel, touch, everything is Hebel. Hebel, a Hebrew word translated here in the New International Version is meaningless, which literally translated just means mist, vapor, a breath. And the way he tested that thesis was to use both his divine gift of wisdom as well as his limitless resources to pursuing three areas that even today... We most often look to to find meaning and purpose in our lives. Wisdom, pleasure, and work. And at the end of his all, at the end of all of this testing, his conclusion was, while all of those things are absolutely good, they are good, they are good gifts from God's hand to be enjoyed, none of them can give us the lasting value and meaning that doesn't slip through our hands the minute we try to grasp hold of it and control of it like a mist. So, this was the testing of his thesis, and those were his conclusions, meaning that our meaning and purpose in life is found, as author David Gibson said last week, is found not in our striving, but in God's giving. That's where our meaning and purpose is found. And so it makes sense, I think, after establishing the fact that none of our earthly pursuits can offer us the meaning and purpose in life that we're all seeking that Solomon would then go on to describe our experience of that life under the sun and in that world. Why? Well, because Solomon knows, probably from firsthand experience, that the moment we come to admit our ability to control life in one area is gone, 
It's not as though we just fold our hands and just let go and let God or whatever. No, our instinctive human desire is to immediately want to try to find somewhere else to gain control. Okay, I don't have it here. Where else, what else can I grab onto? So, now in our passage this morning, describing the various times and seasons that we all experience in our lives under the sun, Solomon is now going to confront our illusion of control over time over the passing of time, revealing that, in fact, it is God and and not us that is truly in control of those things. Essentially, just to use the picture we start with, he's saying that the reason Peter Pan continues to escape Captain Hook, the reason Captain Hook continues to escape the crocodile is not because we can, in our own efforts and skill, manage and control and escape time's grasp. They escape those things simply because The author wrote their experience that way. As I want to continue to remind us throughout this series, Solomon isn't showing us all this stuff in order to be cynical. He's not trying to be depressing or defeatist. He's trying to teach us to truly enjoy life under the sun as God intended, which is only possible when we don't expect the pursuits of life to offer us what only God can give us. And the key to doing that, the key to truly enjoying our lives under the sun now and the good gifts God has given us, and that Solomon lays out in the book of Ecclesiastes, is this, to live out our days under the sun with a constant awareness that they're not going to last forever. That one day, our lives are going to come to an end. So as we consider Solomon's beautiful poem here about life, the passing of time, as well as God's ultimate control over all of it, I want to look at our passage this morning today in two ways. I want to show you our finite experience of time and then God's sovereign control over time. Our finite experience of time and God's sovereign control over time. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them up? Again, to our passage there in Ecclesiastes 3, follow along with me as we look now at Solomon's description about how God takes all the various times and events of life and weaves them into something beautiful in his perfect time. So let's look first of all at our finite experience of time. Our finite experience of time. Look with me at verse 1. Solomon begins his description of life that we all experience, as we all experience it in this way. He says, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. Now, as is often mentioned whenever this passage is taught, know that, that niggling question in the back of your minds, it's like, that sounds really familiar. Why, where have I heard that before? It's not, without, it's not without good cause, okay? Whether you actually grew up in the 60s or you've just seen films like Forrest Gump, that, where the soundtracks kind of highlight the music of that decade, you probably know that a folk singer Pete Seeger, he put these first eight verses of Ecclesiastes to a tune that was later made famous by the birds in 65. Turn, turn, turn. Do you know this song? To everything, turn, turn, turn. You know this song. Maybe you do. Some people look at me blankly. It's a famous song. Look it up. Not right now. The intent of the teacher, though, was never just to write a catchy lyric that could later on be put to a song. His point was to set the stage for his continued exploration of what he's been investigating throughout the whole book, namely, everything under the sun. He wants to investigate it 
all to see where can we find happiness, where can we find the meaning and purpose we're seeking in life. And as it relates to that, he tells us that from his investigation, he's come to see that there is both a time and a season for every activity under heaven, everything. A season, uh, the word in the Hebrew is zaman. Don't quote me on that. I'm probably saying it wrong. Zaman, which has the sense of an appointed time in the future. That's what's meant by season. Then time, the Hebrew word et, which means a fitting opportunity or a suitable moment. So when we take that all together, what that teaches us is there is a fitting opportunity given and an appointed time for everything that he's about to describe underneath this now. Everything that happens under the sun, now given and appointed by whom? Well, just hang on. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's just consider this first of all, as can be understood with our simple observation. And if you look at verses 2 through 7 now, you see that next Solomon walks us through a series of 14 pairs intended to encompass the entirety of our human existence. And what he's doing there is he's using a literary device called a merism where two polarities are given to describe something in its fullness. So, for instance, in verse 2, when he talks about a time to be born and a time to die, he's talking about when life begins and when life ends, as well as everything in between them. That's how he's using this literary device. Similar to Genesis 1, talks about in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not just talking about the ground and the sky. It's talking about everything and everything in between them. But... Just like with Solomon's non-conservative evangelical-sounding answer that he gave last week to the answer where we find meaning and purpose in life, chapter 2 and verse 24, most Christians today can't even get past verse 2 of what Solomon says are the fitting opportunities of life before hitting verse 3 like a cyclist hitting an open car door in a bike lane, by which I mean we're sent flying and we don't know where we are for a few minutes. Because just look at some of the things that he lists here as fitting opportunities in our lives. Verse 3, a time to kill, a time to tear down. Verse 6, a time to give up, a time to throw away. And verse 8, a time to hate and a time for war. And if you're like me, when you're first reading this, you think it's a joke. You're looking around for the hidden camera and you think someone's messing with you. You're like, come on, man, good one. Okay, guys, which, who put this in here? And then when nobody comes out, all of a sudden you're left once again wondering to yourself, what? This is in the Bible? Yeah, yeah, it is. And what ends up happening very often when we read Solomon's descriptions here is on the one side, either in defense of the Bible or maybe just embarrassment, we come up with all kinds of really goofy interpretations of Solomon's descriptions here. We we try to explain away all the parts that make us uncomfortable or even just outright omit them, just take them out in some kind of pious Thomas Jefferson-esque kind of thing. You know, it's just like, I'm sure God didn't really mean for this to be in here like that. Or on the other side, those who maybe are more hostile or critical of the Christian faith, they they read this same description and they think, well, of course, of course. Christians always want to pretend that the Bible and and Christianity is this loving, you know, daisy chains and whatever religion. It's obvious. No, of course. It's just as violent and tyrannical as every other religion in the world. What I'd like to have you consider this morning is that both of those positions are wrong. 
that the Bible needs neither our defense, nor do, are we fit to sit in judgment over it. As the famous 19th century Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon was said to have quipped, the Bible is like a lion in a cage. And rather than seeking to defend it, what it needs most is just to be let out of the cage, and it can defend itself quite well. In the face of an uncaged lion, I think we can agree, both defenders and the attackers are going to disappear pretty quickly. And well beyond that, when you remember what I said earlier about the way that Solomon's using this literary device, the merism, right, that's intended to describe both the edges as well as the body of a certain experience, we see some things in particular that can help us. Two things, first of all. Solomon is not saying that every one of these things in its most extreme form will be all of our experience. Remember, the purpose of a merism is to include the full range of experience possible of, a, of, of, of each of these events. He's trying to ex- describe everything. It may not be your experience. But if we would just pause and consider more deeply, I think each and every person in here this morning, if you're honest could probably find examples where each one of these things, even the kind of extreme-sounding ones, could be fitting even in your own life. And we don't have time to try on all these pairs of shoes, but let's, let's look at just a couple of the hard ones just to kind of give you an idea of what I mean. First of all, a time to kill. Forget Samuel Jackson for a moment. Think of your life, a time to kill. That's part of our experience as a Christian person, really? Now, for most of us, we don't think of this anything more than, let's say, if you're going to kill some weeds in your garden. That's the most we usually have to decide this. My wife and I, we're really good at killing houseplants, but that's not on purpose, so I don't know if that counts. But consider for a moment, what if you're part of the military? What if you're part of uh, police services of some kind? Well, then, in those professions, there's absolutely times where uh, you're in combat, you're in a hostage situation. There could definitely be appropriate, even necessary times when you'd have to make the decision to take a life. I'm not trying to make a blanket statement about that, and that may never be the case in your life, but it is part of our human experience, even for a Christian person. A time to hate, what about that? Isn't that, doesn't Jesus say we're not supposed to hate? Well, this could be as simple as the hatred of mushrooms, which I do unapologetically. But think on a deeper level. Think on a much more serious level. Who among us does not feel hatred when we hear about things like child trafficking, rape, racism, the selling of an unborn child's body parts? Who among us does not feel hatred in the face of these things? King David says, Psalm 139, verse 21, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And abhor those who rise up against you. Paul in Romans 12, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. If we don't feel hatred towards the things that God hates, even on a basic level, the indwelling sin that we still must fight against that Paul talks about in Romans 7. If we don't hate the things that God hates, how can we truly claim to be his? What about a time for war? At the risk of offending my pacifist brothers and sisters, while I don't think all wars are just, I don't, 
But when you consider, for example, a situation like the Third Reich, as it slowly took over Europe, as, as it saw countless Jewish men and women carted off in train cars to be gassed, I think all of us, to some degree, would have to agree that was an appropriate, although terrible, time for war. Or maybe that's too extreme, too, too historical an example. Just consider, why do you think Paul goes to such great lengths in Ephesians 6 to describe in detail this armor of God that each believer is supposed to put on? Is it not because since the fall in Genesis 3, all the sons and daughters of God have been in constant war, a constant state of war with the forces of darkness? There is a time for war. Point at this stage of the discussion, anyway, is this Solomon's beautiful poem describing the, the full range of our human experience under the sun, when considered carefully, is it's much more fitting than perhaps we gave it credit for it to begin with. There is an appointed time, a, a fitting opportunity for every activity under the sun, even if the circumstances that would make it fitting never arise in your own lifetime. And what gives each of these times an even deeper significance is when, as I suggested earlier, when we read on now and consider who it is that's giving and appointing those times and why. So, that is our finite experience of time. Let's look now at God's sovereign control over time. God's sovereign control over time. And we need to look at this because, first of all, so what? Who... Who cares? Yeah, yeah, Solomon has this beautifully described the fullness of our human experience in this poem, but he hasn't actually said anything about it. He hasn't said why it even matters. I can write a poem about uh, eating breakfast cereal in the morning and describe the fullness of that experience, but so what? Who cares? How does that help us at all? Secondly, we need to look at this because verse 8 is where people often stop reading. You, you, you've heard this poem, you've heard it in songs, you've probably, you, you have probably heard this poem read uh, at the funeral of the most secular person you know. Why? Because it, it does, it describes beautifully the fullness of our human experience. People read the first eight verses, but if you don't keep reading, you don't understand why Solomon even wrote that experience of life in the first place. And the first answer to the why of verses 1 through 8, we see in the first half of verse 11. Look with me there. Solomon says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Aha! Okay, so now that, that answers the question of earlier of who it is that's giving these opportunities, appointing these times. Solomon says it is God himself that is ordering and directing all of these times. And the point of his giving and appointing these times, Solomon says, is God wants to make everything beautiful in its time. He's ordering all these times of our lives in order to make everything beautiful in its time. The sweetest thing in all my life, wrote C.S. Lewis in his book, Till We Have Faces, has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from. Whether it's just scrolling through old family pictures on your phone, uh, uh, sitting and reminiscing with friends over dinner, or just sitting on a bench uh, in a park or on a beach, and just 
watching life happen around you. What makes all the beauty that we see around us so meaningful is not just seeing and experiencing, but knowing the place where it came from. Just as if someone were to give you an old pocket watch, it wouldn't be nearly as meaningful to you as if you were to find out this is actually a watch that belonged to your great-great-grandfather. It gives the, where it came from, makes something that already is beautiful even more meaningful and significant. But in acknowledging that reality that God is the one governing and directing our times, it almost immediately impacts our understanding of time as well as our desire to have control over it, because in acknowledging that it's God and not us that appoints and directs all the times and activity under the sun, suddenly we're confronted with the reality that that beautiful family picture you're looking at. You're looking at this picture of a beautiful family on your phone. That's great. It's not a result of your ordering of time. It's not a result of you uh, being smart enough to pick a great spouse and then choosing to have a family and choosing to live here and there. God is the one who directed those times. God is the one who directed the time that you would search for a spouse, as well as the time when you would love them. God is the one who directed when that fertilized egg would be planted inside, and he also directed the time when your child would be born. He's directing all of the times. What you now look on as beautiful came about because God gives opportunities and appoints times for every activity under the sun, He appointed it that way. That's why you see it as beautiful. And subsequently, he made it beautiful in its time, which means the place where the beauty comes from is him. That's the place where the beauty comes from. And honestly, I could go on with example after example of this, but the problem for most of us is that in acknowledging that reality also means the reality that we're not in control of our times hits us right in the face. And many of us, even if we say we're cool with that, we're not cool with that. We don't like that. And the reason is, along with surrendering the illusion of control, that's already hard, when we look around us, can we just be honest with each other this morning? When we look around us, we don't just see and experience all kinds of beauty, do we? We also see and experience some incredibly hard things in our days under the sun as well. And what we're left with is holding verse 11 beside our current experience of grief, of loss, of suffering. And we're left asking, beautiful? Really, Solomon? He makes everything beautiful, eh? I mean, if you just look back even at the pairs that Solomon lists in verse 1 through 8, you see that along with all these things that we could absolutely see bringing beauty, there's also an equal amount of things that make us ask, how in the world can God bring beauty out of that? War? Hate? How in the world can God bring beauty out of that? Well, just to be really honest with you and give you one example of a way I think God can absolutely bring beauty out of those hard places in life as well. Standing out under a streetlight one night and looking back up into our apartment that we were living in at the time, I asked God the exact same question. 
God had brought two very broken people together, my wife and I. And for some reason, beyond my comprehension at the time, he also decided to give us two wonderful daughters into that mix. I've loved my wife from the day we first met, but when God brought our brokenness together, there was a lot of sparks that took place, and not in a good way. We struggled a lot. We fought a lot. And we hurt each other deeply in all kinds of different ways. And so now, here I was again, standing out in the cold, nerves frazzled, tear-stained face, my throat raw from screaming at each other, and I'm looking up into our apartment window, and I didn't want to go back inside. I loved my wife and my kids with a love I can't even explain, but that love also hurt a lot. It came at an incredibly high cost, where I felt like we had to fight for every millimeter of progress, and then we'd mess up and we'd go back two yards. And I remember asking God that night and many nights after that, how could you possibly bring any beauty out of this? And I won't bore you with all the details, but I'll just simply say this, because of the faithfulness of our God, as well as some very dear friends and family whose times God had appointed to build, to embrace, to weep alongside us. In the end, we made it safely off the edge of that precipice into a place of stability that I could never have imagined in that moment. And no, not a place of perfection and not struggling anymore. Please never hear me say that. But a place of trust and safety with each other now that is now blindingly beautiful to me. And on top of that, now I get the great privilege and opportunity to meet couples who are on the brink of walking away from each other, and I get to say, hold on. Don't, don't give up yet. I know it looks hopeless right now. I've been there. But God truly can make something beautiful come out of this in his time. He can. I'm living proof of that. And that's something beautiful God made out of those years of pain and struggle as well. Derek Kidner says it this way in his commentary on this passage. We are like the desperately nearsighted, inching their way along some great tapestry or fresco in an attempt to take it all in, We see enough to recognize something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us, for we can never stand back far enough to view it as the Creator does, whole and entire from the beginning to end. We have a God revealed to us in the Bible who is big enough to take all the good and the messy times of our lives and make them into something beautiful. No, we, we don't always, we're not always going to get to see it become beautiful in our lifetime. No, we're not always going to get to see how it weaves and fits within God's vast tapestry over time. We don't always. But the examples of beauty that we do get to see in our days under the sun should at least give us some measure of faith to trust Him in the circumstances where we don't. The circumstances where we do get to see the beauty should give us faith to trust him with the circumstances where we don't. 
The second why to verses 1 through 8 comes in the second half of verse 11, and we'll close with this this morning. After telling us that God is the one who is sovereign over all the various times and seasons of our life, Solomon goes on to say this. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet so that they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Now, this is interesting. Even from the standpoint that Solomon is using the word eternity like a noun, he set eternity in our hearts. What he's getting at there is that God has put a desire, a longing in the heart of every man and woman to be able to see and experience and and look at and gather and fathom all the experiences of life and understand them from beginning to end. It means a longing for the eternal is woven into the DNA of every one of us. But as quickly as that's out of his mouth, Solomon's very quick to add a yet... He goes on to say that God has put that desire in every single one of us, but yet he's done that knowing that that desire and that longing could never be fulfilled in this life. Why would God do that? Well, I believe that this too is a part of God's good and beautiful design for the universe. Why? Well, Because the first gift of giving us a desire for the eternal that can't be discovered, that can't be found out during our days under the sun, is that it's a constant reminder from our creator of our createdness, of our creatureliness. God in his mercy is giving us a constant reminder of our boundaries and our limitations so that we don't foolishly chase after the wind of some kind of misguided idea that we have this measure of control that we don't actually have. To boil it down to its most simplest form, a frustrated desire that God has placed within each one of us is God's way of always reminding us, you're not me. Second gift giving us a desire for the eternal that can't be discovered and found out during our days under the sun, is that it constantly leads us to seek after the one who is eternal. Leads us to ask, where where did all this beauty come from? And it leads us, as the creatures, to seek their creator. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Acts 17. He said, God determined the times set for us and the exact places we should live. Why? God did this so that men would seek him, perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Centuries later, C.S. Lewis said it this way, If I find within myself a desire for which nothing in this world can satisfy, it must mean that I was made for another world. And I think that's exactly right. We we were made for another world, but because of the brokenness that sin's curse brought on God's creation, now presently nothing works anymore like God intended it to, including us. And yet what the Bible tells us is that God has also set a time, an appointed time, when he will make what is presently broken beautiful again as well, reconciling all things to himself. Describing some of that waiting period, Paul says it this way in Romans 8. 
He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. I don't know where any of this finds you this morning, where you are presently groaning this morning. Whatever you're facing today, whether it's mourning, uh, tearing, weeping, uprooting, first of all, we can rest in the fact that the one who is sovereign over all times has appointed even these hard times. And although it's so hard and it hurts so much. And we question what good he could ever bring out of it. The promise of God's word here, first of all, is he will make everything beautiful in his time. It's a promise from his word. He will. The second thing is that the hope of this passage is that the longing for beauty, the, the groaning for beauty that we all experience in the midst of brokenness is actually a designed longing to make each and every one of us long for him. Why? Because he is the place where all the beauty comes from. And in turning to him, in clinging to him, we find at last our one and only hope to having that eternal longing for beauty fulfilled at last. Let's pray. But I ask at this time, those of you who are helping me to serve communion, if you'd come forward and wait at the front with me. Father, we praise you this morning for your word to us. It's an amazing word. It describes our experience so well, and it also describes the big why of our experience. It gives us a little peek behind the curtain, doesn't show us everything, but enough to see what you're working out, that you do have a plan that you're working out. And even though we can't see it, and even though we experience so much that's not beautiful, to know that you do have a plan to restore all things to yourself, that you want to use us to even be a part of that. God, would you give us patience? Would you give us faith to trust you, even in the midst of the hard times? May we be a, a family of believers who come alongside one another and encourage each other to take the times that you've carried us through and to hold out hope to each other. Use us that way. Grow a faith and a trust in us, I pray. And I ask this for Jesus' name. Amen.